very dear in his heart. Um, in a minute, John's going to come and read to us. Let me lead us in a prayer. We need God's help as we turn to his words. Uh, God, our Father, thank you that we can read your words, that we have it in our language, that we can understand, that we can hear from you, the God who, who made us, who knows us, who loves us. Help us to listen tonight, Father God. Help us to respond to what it is you're saying to us and help us to live lives that bring glory to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Grab a Bible, 1 Thessalonians 4, page 1187, I think. John's going to read. Please do grab a Bible uh, there in the chairs in front of you. That's page 1187. So page 1187, and we're going to start at chapter 4, verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life, Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with all your hand and work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Thank you very much, John. Um, if you were here last week, you remember we were thinking a little about legacies, uh, about the way in which um, uh, we might leave behind an impact uh, on uh, our world, uh, what it is that uh, would leave a, a positive as opposed to a negative uh, legacy behind us. Um, and we were thinking particularly about the way in which um, two aspects spoke into that, the way in which we receive God's word um, from the end of chapter 2, um, and the way in which we love God's people 
um, and uh, the chapter 3 was uh, our focus as we looked at those two ideas in Paul's letter. Now, it could be that you were left thinking, well, that's all a bit vague, the way we receive God's word, the way we love God's people, which is a bit sort of nebulous, a bit hard to sort of pin down. Well, fear not, because uh, uh, as you've just noticed, this week Paul gets very specific. Um, so far, Paul has been focusing on the past. I have a suspicion that these Christians in Thessalonica um, had some concerns about whether what had happened, the decisions they'd made uh, to follow Christ, were the real thing. Was it authentic? Paul had only been there for for probably four weeks uh, before um, the persecution had had pushed him on uh, to Berea and then on to Athens. Um, and I think it may well be that the Christians there thought, well, you know, have we heard enough? Of, uh, have we really got this Christian thing going? And in all sorts of ways, through the first half of the letter, Paul is saying, no, your faith is authentic. Uh, look at your response. It's an authentic response uh, of faith in the gospel message that has been spoken to you. And my ministry among you was authentic. Uh, and even the persecution that you have endured. Now, that's authentic too, because uh, that's authentic Christian experience uh, that with believing in Christ so often follows uh, the experience of difficulty, struggle, and persecution uh, from outside. So, Chapters 1 to 3, Paul is, is looking at back at what has happened, offering them reassurance about the authenticity of their faith. Uh, and then in chapters 4 onwards, uh, Paul shifts gears and begins to be more specific about what it is that they are to do, how it is that they are to live. And you get the flavor that he's probably responding to specific concerns. Remember, Timothy has just arrived uh, from Thessalonica, brought message with him. Um, and almost at once, Paul seems to have sat down to write, uh, Timothy's just come from you. So probably uh, some of the things that we're now about to read are specifically responding to things that Timothy's told him about the way things are going in Thessalonica. Uh, two top issues, you've seen those. Uh, Paul has something to say about sex, and Paul has something to say about work. Uh, but before he does that, he's got a few introductory comments Um, So let me read verses 1 and 2 again. Uh, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. There's a consistency between what Paul's saying now and what he said previously. Um, He's not landing new ideas on them. He's already told them uh, about the way that they should be living in these areas, and now he's building on that. And what he said to them is that they need to be living in a way that is pleasing uh, to God. It's important as as we get into this little section, though, Um, to to make sure we understand the sequence of events. Because so often people do misunderstand this. Uh, The great misunderstanding of the Christian faith is this one, isn't it? Uh, The idea that doing good leads to salvation. Um, 
but that is thoroughly to misunderstand. Uh, that's what religion says. You do good stuff uh, and you win God's favor. That's not the gospel. Okay, so is it the other way around? Uh, is it, as it were, that we get saved uh, and that leads to us doing good works? Well, that's a bit better, isn't it? But is that quite on the, on the nail? Just think for a moment about what it is that Jesus said at the very beginning of his ministry in Mark's Gospel. What he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Turn and believe are a simultaneous action. So I suppose I don't know what you'd catch it something like this. Um, it is to repent and believe the good news is the whole thing. You can't sort of divide it up. There is a response to God in terms of a turning and an adopting of the way of living that he wants for us that happens hand in hand with believing him. There's no such thing as a believer who is not beginning to live God's way. So, with that in mind... um, Notice that uh, we get exactly the same idea here. When we brought the gospel to you, says Paul, we also brought instruction about the way that you should live if you want to please God. And the instruction is non-negotiable. Do you get that? Because these instructions, verse 2, come with the authority of Jesus himself. You can't say, well, I, you know, I'd like to believe the gospel, but I don't know about all of this ethical bit. No, the gospel that Christ comes to speak to us and that his apostles come to speak to us goes hand in hand with the instructions about the way in which the Christian life is to be lived. They come from a God whose will is clear. Beginning of verse 3. God's will for you is that you should be sanctified. That is, he wants you and I to be set aside if we're Christian believers. To to be different. It's what the idea of holiness captures. There is an otherness to God. A holiness to him. And, And Christian believers are to live in imitation of him. With a distinctiveness. With, with a, a sense of being set aside for him. Be holy, because God has made you holy. And do it more and more. Now, my suspicion is that holiness has got a bit of an image problem. Um, I think we we misunderstand what holiness is. Um, I'm so old that I can um, still remember first getting this enormously ancient book. It's very tatty. Um, John White, The Fight. Has anyone, who's heard of John White's book, The Fight? Hey, that's encouraging me. It's mostly the grey hairs amongst us uh, who will acknowledge that. Oh, well done. Um, so not entirely grey hairs. Um, Sarah's not, no grey hair at all. Um, it's, it's a lovely book on discipleship, and there's a great chapter on holiness. And it's always stuck in my mind, because um, uh, uh, John White says, um, if I do a little bit of word association with holiness, uh, this is what I come up with. Thinness, 
hollow-eyed gauntness, beards, sandals, long robes, stone cells, no sex, no jokes, hair shirts, frequent cold baths, fasting, hours of prayer, wild rocky deserts, getting up at 4 a.m., clean fingernails, stained glass, self-humiliation. And and you sort of get his point. You know, it's a pretty miserable kind of list, a lot of it. It's a sort of funny idea, holiness, and we struggle to see what it is that God is really calling us to. Well, actually, rightly understood, holiness is positive. And that's really well captured here by the idea of what I've told you to do, do more and more. The theologians speak of the idea of progressive sanctification. Progressing, moving on with sanctification, getting holy. Bit by bit, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Now, here's a question for you. If you're a Christian believer, what is your ambition for the particular ways that you are going to get more and more like Jesus Christ in 2018? Got a plan for that? You have some sense of what it is you think that God may be working on in you as he forges you into the likeness of Christ? If you've got absolutely no idea of the particular ways, and it may be exactly the same as last year, because a lot of us are slow learners, but if you've got no idea of the way in which, Jesus, the way in which God is forming you more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ, then you're really on the back foot, aren't you? In terms of that process of transformation, that progressive sanctification. As whoever said it, um, if you have no target, you are pretty likely to hit it. Think about that for a moment. You won't achieve much if you don't have an ambition and a target in relation to your progression in the likeness of Christ. So let's get specific. Um, First then, first area, um, sex and godliness, or godliness and sex. Um, Let me read again, uh, verses 3 through to 5. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Now, it is intriguing, actually, and John and I were talking about this earlier, that we should be preaching on this passage um, right in the middle of the series that John is uh, preaching on from Song of Songs uh, through the morning. Um, Because both are reminding us how good and right God's gift of sex is, provided we keep it in its proper place. And by contrast, how dangerous and damaging God's gift of sex is when we remove it from its proper place. Now, uh, these last, um, uh, this last week of um, cold snap, um, we're fortunate enough in our home to have a fireplace. So it's been a great joy uh, to sort out a fire Uh, and have a fire in our sitting room. Now, I take it that as I say that, you are immediately pitching a fireplace, uh, a fire in the fireplace, which would be accurate. 
Because it would be bizarre, wouldn't it? If instead of putting the fire in the fireplace, we took the fire and put it in an armchair on the other side of the room. Not wise. There is a right place for the fire. There it is greatly enjoyed and greatly appreciated. Elsewhere in the room, in the wrong place, uh, it is greatly to be feared, uh, and the damage that it will cause is huge. Now, that is why God gave the right context for his gift of sexuality. The, the word translated sexual immorality in verse 3 is porneia. Uh, and it's a catch-all word describing any kind of sexual activity that is taking place outside the God-given context of a loving monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. So when Paul says, avoid sexual immorality, the things he has in mind are very, very broad. He means premarital sex and extramarital sex. He means homosexual sex and pornographic sex. Because all of those expressions of sexuality are taking God's gift of sex and using it in a context other than the one that he has declared is his intention. Actually, unloving sexual activity within marriage would fall under this bracket as well. That too's outside the boundary because there is nothing honorable and holy about the kind of marital abuse that spills over into the bedroom. And we need to be clear about that too. Just being married doesn't guarantee that your sex is holy and honorable. Plenty of domestic abuse goes on within the marriage relationship. And God is against that too. And I want us to see that none of this is because God is a spoil sport. Because notice verse 6. In this matter... No one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or a sister. The the reason that God gives us these boundaries for his use of the gift of sex is because he knows the damage that will follow when we get it in the wrong place. Um, So the message of the, the sexual revolution back in the 60s was that sex could be enjoyed whenever, wherever we wanted as long as two people agreed, then that was fine. And the decades since then, we've been reaping the whirlwind of that in so many different ways, with so many broken hearts and damaged hearts, so many broken dreams and ruined ambitions whether it's the sexual exploitation of women in the sex industry. Yes, that use of pornography is harmful. We mustn't fool ourselves that nobody's hurt by our use of pornography. People are hurt and damaged by the pornography industry. So we are doing damage to people, not only to ourselves but to others. Uh, 
but it also stretches right through to the blunting of sexual joy that results from the experience of multiple partners, which has gradually hardened a person's heart. God's not against sex. It was his idea, funnily enough. As we're seeing in the morning, he just wants sex to be used in its proper place. The the astonishing thing in the Bible, actually, is the daring association that God makes between a sexual relationship uh, and our relationship with Jesus Christ. It's astonishing that he should choose to make that link. Very daring. Uh, uh, And perhaps that's why his disapproval of the misuse of sex is so strong. Uh, look at uh, verse, um, the end of verse 6, uh, where Paul writes, The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. There's nothing negotiable about God's instruction in this area. Understand that to to ignore God in in this area is not to overlook a, a few minor terms and conditions that are somewhere way down in the small print. No, no, this is headline stuff. Because the issue isn't about whether it feels right to me. No, the issue is whether it accords with the intentions of God. Whether the way that I am behaving in the sexual arena, whether I'm married or unmarried, whether the way that I'm behaving in the sexual arena is pleasing to God or not. Okay. Much more that we could say about that. Uh, But before we're done, uh, let's take a moment to look at the other area uh, that Paul focuses on here, uh, which is work and godliness. Um, Let me read the whole paragraph um, and then uh, share just one or two thoughts on it. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. There's that idea again. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Now, there's a bit of background that it is helpful to understand in relation to, to, to this teaching, um, which doesn't really emerge uh, until we get into uh, the second letter that Paul wrote uh, to this church. Because it, it seems that there were some in Thessalonica who had become so preoccupied with the idea of Jesus coming back again that they'd begun to think that, you know, nothing else really mattered. There was no need to do any work because the second coming was coming. Um, and, well, let's just sort of wait for that then. 
Um, and those people, instead of working, were depending upon other people uh, to, to provide for them. And in response, Paul says, get back to work. Mind your own business. Work with your own hands. Demonstrate your love for others by doing your fair share. Nothing loving about letting others shoulder your work in your place. Now, I know that's a slightly funny idea, and um, not many of you are thinking about not going to work tomorrow morning because you're sure Jesus is going to come back tomorrow. Um, So you thought you'd sort of stay at home. Um, I, I don't imagine that's our way of thinking in the way that it was here. But nevertheless, the principles that we find here can still be very instructive for our struggles in relation to the workplace. Um, Notice first that work is not something we do primarily for ourselves, for our own satisfaction. Because what I just read, verses 9 through through to 12, that's one sentence in the original. And notice that it starts with the idea of loving others and flows seamlessly into the way that you do your work. So making very strongly the point that that our work is an expression of our love for others. Um, How do we understand that? Well, you see, our culture tells us that we go to work primarily for ourselves, I think. Either I do my job because it gives me great job satisfaction. Uh, It makes me feel good about myself. Or I enjoy doing it. Or I I go to work for material satisfaction, because it gives me the money uh, that I like getting paid. But you see that for Paul, going to work is other person-focused. How would that work for you and me? Well, maybe I go to work in order to earn money that I can give away so that I can support missionaries, so that I can tithe at Christchurch. You know, that one of my motivations for work is that it gives me resources with which I can love others, and that could be at a material level. Or, or perhaps I go to work in order to love others because that helps me to serve the community. Um, because I, I go to work and I serve others as a teacher, as a social worker, as a health visitor, as a banker. Hang on. Actually, no, that is what I meant. Because there is a way, isn't there, of being a banker who serves others, who uses their financial wisdom to bring blessing to the people that he or she serves. See, it doesn't so much matter what job you do, by and large. I'm sure there are one or two that we might want to um, exclude. But the majority of jobs, it isn't about the particular job we do, but it's the attitude, the mindset that we bring to it, whether we see ourselves there as a, a servant of other people working in a way that brings blessing to other people. 
Work is a good thing. Don't imagine that work arose in Genesis chapter 3 because sin had entered the world. No, work was there in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, part of God's good gift in creation. And work will be there in the new creation. God will have good things for us to do in service of others. We're designed to work because we're designed to serve other people. And as Ephesians put it, it is good uh, to have something to share with those in need. Okay, we need to stop. Um, I said I wanted to be practical, so let me, let me finish. I'm going to give you a bit of time to reflect, a little bit of quiet. We don't have much of that. Um, so I'm going to give you a bit of time to reflect in a moment. Let me lead into that in this way. There's kind of negative and positive here, isn't there? Um, the negative, I think, that is being pressed upon us here is a realization that both in relation to sexuality and in relation to work, those, those aspects of life can become too important to us. We can, if you like, allow them to become more important to us than God. So instead of saying to ourselves, in the area of sexuality and in the area of work, what must I do in order to please God in those areas? God comes top. How will I please him in these two areas? God gets sidelined uh, and sexuality and work get elevated. And my question is, how can these things please me? Because they feel like the most important thing in my life. Getting a sexual relationship. Progressing in my career. They come to be the dominant ruling influence over my life. So so the negative thing is that we need to get God back in the frame, get him where he belongs at the top, ruling over the way that I live sexually, whether I'm married or whether I'm not married. Getting God at the top, ruling over the way that I do my work, whatever it might be, whether it's in the home or whether it's out in the workplace, whether it's as a student or whether it's as somebody who's retired. There will be work for me to do in all of those contexts. So, so that's, that's the negative bit. But I want to finish, before I leave you some time to think, um, uh, uh, in the positive direction, because we have got this heartbeat here of more and more, haven't we? Um, so, so what does it mean, is my question to you, what, what will it mean to, to love Christ more and more in the way that you live in the sexual arena? What will that mean doing more of? How will you express greater love for Christ in that area? If you're you're going out with somebody, how will you love and respect them more and more? How will you be more and more sure that you're not going to do them any damage? Not going to cause any harm to come to your brother or your sister? in that going out relationship? What will you need to do more and more of in your relationship to ensure that's the case? If you are married, what will you need to do more and more of? 
in this area of your married life in order to fulfill uh, the requirements that God's setting before us now? Or, or in the workplace, what will it look like to, 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 to work in a way that, that means that you, you more and more love others? Is there a colleague who needs to be loved more and more? Perhaps the colleague that you find most difficult to love. Um, is there perhaps um, a, um, a customer in your workplace, if that's the sort of work that you've got, a, a client? Have you got somebody who you can love more and more in the particular work context that you are in? What will it look like? Uh, to improve still further your reputation with outsiders as you love more and more. Uh, you will think of other areas of application. Um, I'm going to stop uh, at that stage. I'm going to get the musicians to come back up to the front because um, they're going to play for us and lead us into a song in a moment. Um, but um, uh, before that, um, let me leave you with a little bit of time of quiet to think about ways in which you need to get God back into his proper place, ruling over these two areas uh, of life, um, or specific ways positively, uh, where more and more uh, you can live in a way that will please uh, the Lord God. I'll leave us with a bit of time of quiet.